Hello and welcome back to the Scottish Centre for Global History's podcast series on the British anti-apartheid movement. I'm Paul Finney and in this bonus episode we're going to discuss the formation and actions of the anti-apartheid movement in the United States throughout the 1970s and 1980s, primarily drawing on parallels and divergences with some of the themes we discussed in our main series on the anti-apartheid movement in Britain. To enable this discussion, Chris, Matt and myself are joined by Matty Webb, a PhD candidate in history at the University of California in Santa Barbara. Matty's research primarily focuses on 20th century US foreign relations as well as African and labour history. Her dissertation, titled Diplomacy at Work, the South African Worker and the Sullivan Principles on the Shop Floor, examines the transnational labour relations that existed between workers and corporations in the US and South Africa. You can find a summarised portion of her research in her blog for the centre, titled Beyond Desegregation, Waging a Battle Against Apartheid in the South African Workplace. Matt, Chris and Matty, thank you for joining me. Matty, before we go into more of the specific details, could you give me a broad overview of how the anti-apartheid movement emerged in the United States and how it was generally composed? Yeah, certainly. So the anti-apartheid movement had a very broad foundation by the time it escalated in the 1970s. So intellectually speaking, the anti-apartheid movement had its origins with Black internationalism and this longer history of Pan-Africanism, and ultimately grew with the proliferation of anti-colonial politics in the post-war period. So it was always clear to American anti-apartheid activists that colonialism, apartheid, and racial discrimination were interrelated and were very global in nature not just confined to the United States. The anti-apartheid movement hence recognized these connections even prior to the formal beginnings of the apartheid era in 1948. However, this movement gained much more traction in the post-Soweto period. One thing I really wanna mention that was so central to this movement was the centrality of economic sanctions and full disinvestment from South Africa. This is a really central tenet that anti-apartheid activists really focused on from as early as 1946, which was the meeting of the first General Assembly of the United Nations. There, the Council on African Affairs was really essential in this regard, led by activists like W.E.B. Dubois and Paul Robeson. At this meeting, uh, the Council issued this Charter of African Freedom, which urged the United States and South Africa to both abolish racial segregation. So here we have this very clear tie between abolishing racial segregation in the United States as well as its counterpart of apartheid in South Africa. This movement was of course silenced, as you guys touched on in the other episodes, in the 50s and the 60s. In the United States in particular though, these activists were largely harassed by the FBI and the Justice Department, which tried to tie them to communism. However, This issue of apartheid still loomed uh, in the minds of African-Americans who were still fighting to end legalized desegregation at home. And then, of course, just to segue into later discussion, I think that it's also important to mention that this movement in the United States turned strongly towards South Africa after they won civil rights at home in 1964 with the Civil Rights Act, 1965 with the Voting Rights Act, and then the same cadre of activists needed something else to focus their attention on. So it made sense to kind of draw these connections to global colonialism and in particular the manifestation of racial segregation in apartheid South Africa. 
So when the movement picked up again in the 70s, economic sanctions and full corporate disinvestment was central to the movement. It kind of built on this earlier foundation. So you touched mainly on two key points there. The first one being this broad history of pushing for economic sanctions against South Africa, which goes all the way back to 1946. And you also touched on the importance of this race element that was still prevalent within Britain, but wasn't as stark as it was within the United States. I'll start with the economic sanctions. Was that a congruent message all the way through the construction of the anti-apartheid movement from 1946? up until the 1970s and 80s? Or did it waver as, as other issues came to the fore? That's a really good question. Economic sanctions did not waver in the time period between the inauguration of the apartheid regime and the ultimate culmination of that battle with the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act in 1986, which passed over the veto of President Ronald Reagan. Uh, with broad support from Congress. So economic sanctions maintained a really central foothold in the minds of activists. And the only sense of wavering came to the fore with something like the Sullivan Principles and kind of just this hesitant approach to how to target apartheid from the perspective of more moderate activists or even people who favored being more patient and giving South Africa time to to reform apartheid before calling for a full uh, disinvestment of corporations. Before we go on and speak more about the economic sanctions and the Sullivan principles, can you talk a bit more about this racial element to the anti-apartheid struggle in the United States between those fighting for civil rights and equality within the United States, as well as mirroring those fighting for it in South Africa. You also mentioned the influence of people like W.E.B. Du Bois and Pan-Africanism. Was the anti-apartheid movement in the US strengthened by this African-American connection to Pan-Africanism? And did that make it unique from, say, the British anti-apartheid movement? Certainly. And I think just to give an example of how this was articulated, you know, we can look at even Malcolm X. So Malcolm very clearly tied apartheid to segregation in the United States, once noting if South African racism is not a domestic issue, then American racism is not a domestic issue. So uh, he very much saw these as connected. And this was again around 1964. Malcolm X, for example, again, toured African nations uh, and spoke to the OAU in an effort to strengthen ties between Africans and African-Americans and for the OAU to raise the issue of African-American oppression as closely linked to the campaign against apartheid. And then again, to draw connection to another really prominent figure, uh, MLK also detested apartheid while also fighting racial segregation in the United States. He made this early suggestion that U.S. investors and capitalists should withdraw their support for apartheid. So to kind of tie these figures together, both MLK and Malcolm X long supported Pan-Africanism and global freedom of Black and oppressed peoples around the world. And then eventually, we'll have people like Stokely Carmichael, Randall Robinson, Charles Diggs join and give this movement further life after the passing of Malcolm X and MLK. So these uh, really prominent civil rights activists, all the global situation through the lens of segregation and colonialism. Uh, and of course, the anti-apartheid movement came so powerful because of these ties to civil rights movements and that foundation that it had prior to events like Soweto. 
I mean, I appreciate this is jumping ahead a little bit, but in the 1980s, the the US government quite actively caught Buteleze and promotes the, the self-governance of the Bantu stand. So how does this problematize the efforts by anti-apartheid activists in the US in the 1980s as the government seeks to create ties and deals with leaders like Buteleze? It was definitely a problem for the anti-apartheid movement, but the anti-apartheid movement was never necessarily warm to Buteleze and very much could see through the Reagan administration's tactic in that regard because of constructive engagement and Reagan's larger history of just not being an ally to the Black community at all. So from the outset, he was a target for the movement and they were pretty bound to disagree with anything that he proposed in a compromising way. And of course, this increasingly became a problem aligning with these more moderate Black African leaders because of the violence that continued to be you know, broadcasted in the, in the states. The anti-apartheid movement was able to capitalize on that and take advantage of a really weak policy from the Reagan administration in the form of constructive engagement, just because it always put South African whites first and never really brought, for example, the ANC to the bargaining table. Jean Kirkpatrick, uh, who was the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, many times turned down meetings with Black leadership. And at the same time, they were conversing with the apartheid government uh, and willing to put their security needs first, for example, addressing what was going on in Angola and tying independence in Namibia to draw of Cuban troops in Angola, which was a South African security issue. So I think just because of that element of constructive engagement and the idea that whites still came first in Reagan's mind was something that the anti-apartheid movement, you know, very much could use to its leverage. So in the, in the UK, we see quite a large amount of the mobilization of the anti-apartheid movement um, connected to other broader issues. And I was wondering to what extent, particularly in the 1960s and early 1970s, the kind of the, the anti-war uh, Vietnam protests um, intertwine with anti-apartheid activity, or at least whether they draw in activists into the, uh, the focus on South Africa through, that, through those means? Yeah, this is a really good question. And to some extent, there is a little bit of overlap. And I think that most of a lot of the activists who came of age in the you know, anti-war movement and had this you know, feeling of just distrust and malaise towards the U.S. government carried that over to the anti-apartheid protests. But in the United States, the movement and the protests were silenced in the 60s, you know, due to the Cold War and the FBI's role in, you know, again, kind of suppressing some of this this activism. But then in the 70s, you have some kind of inst instances of activism with like the Polaroid, you know, workers movement, and then um, in the early 70s. But again, this doesn't really heat up so much again until 1976 with Soweto. And then on college campuses, doesn't have a huge presence until the 80s with kind of, again, going back to Ronald Reagan being this clear target for activists. And so a number of the activists who came of age in this 
in the Vietnam War movement gravitate towards fighting against apartheid uh, in South Africa, but they, there wasn't so much overlap just because the, the movement in the United States didn't robustly make this scene until the 1980s. You mentioned the in- impact of the multinational corporations being being one aspect of this uh, multi-pronged attack on, on the apartheid state. A lot of your research is focused around Leon Sullivan, the civil rights leader and businessman and the creation of the Sullivan Principles in the 1970s. Could you speak a bit about both Leon Sullivan and the Sullivan Principles as well as the influence that he had on the wider struggle against apartheid? Yeah, so the Sullivan Principles, just to kind of give a definition, uh, were voluntary corporate code of conduct meant for U.S. corporations operating in apartheid South Africa. Their namesake is Reverend Leon Sullivan, who was an African-American Baptist minister in Philadelphia. So Sullivan very much fits the mold of this anti-apartheid activist who was steeped in the civil rights movement, took that knowledge and applied it to apartheid in, in South Africa. He was a veteran of the civil rights movement and a recently appointed member of the General Motors Board of Directors, who was actually the first African-American to hold that position. So this was a big deal. And he ultimately crafted the principles and released them with the support initially of about 12 signatories in March of 77. The code eventually peaked with uh, 184 signatories in 1986. And just to, you know, put this into context, that was out of a total of 350 U.S. corporations stationed in apartheid South Africa. The logic of this of the Sullivan Principles was essentially this. If you can expand capitalism and further develop the free market, racism will come to an end. So Sullivan thought that enlightened business practices that empowered Black workers on the ground in South Africa would be the most efficient and purposeful way to bring down the walls of apartheid through peaceful and economic means, all the while avoiding conflict with the South African government. So this was essentially marketed as an alternative to economic sanctions or the robust mandatory economic sanctions that the movement was promoting. And this code of conduct had six tenets, things like non-segregation of the races, equal pay for equal work, and then even increasing number of blacks and other non-whites in supervisory positions. It evolved over time, including eventually an amplification that allowed Black workers to join multiracial trade unions. So the impact of the code, of course, is very mixed. It ultimately did not succeed in ending apartheid. Sullivan eventually sort of abandoned the code in 1987 uh, and called for all corporations fully uh, exit South Africa. So again, uh, just because of the result and just how long the code was in play without overtly ending apartheid, scholars tend to be fairly critical of its impact and question some of the ulterior motives of the Sullivan team in, in targeting apartheid. It does seem that from what you've said about the Sullivan principles, it's, it's almost a move from the grassroots emotive connections of, say, the civil rights struggle or uh, the anti-Vietnam war movement to a much more bureaucratic and pragmatic way to both negotiate with the apartheid state and 
help bring about a, a gradual reformist stance against against apartheid. Within that, you mentioned the ulterior motives of some of the companies involved within the Sullivan Principles. In its inception, would you say that Sullivan and those principles would have rather been more radical, but were privy to the political circumstances of the time? Or would their impact deliberately minimised to help business interests from the outset? I think a lot of this is because Sullivan was very much stymied in, by corporations, in particular General Motors. So if you look at Sullivan's speeches and his writings, he very much wanted apartheid to come to an abrupt end. You know, in the early 70s, once he was appointed to the board of General Motors, he gave a speech calling for General Motors to get out of South Africa and had to eventually backtrack on this. It received a lot of criticism and the chairman of General Motors said, we need to find a way to stay, but portray to the American public that we are doing good. We are, we are making changes and we care about the workers in South Africa. So he very much compromised his Sullivan principles and throughout uh, their tenure, Sullivan would many times state that he was disappointed with corporations and he wanted them to do more. Uh, he gave a speech at Witts University in, in Joburg in, I believe, 1983, calling for corporations to go beyond the principles, saying that this is actually just starting point. I want you to actually improve the lives of workers outside of the workplace. But as time went on, corporations clearly weren't taking you know, clear steps to better the lives of workers outside of the workplace. They were more or less relying on Sullivan principles as a, um, a way to hide their operations in South Africa and say that, you know, we're desegregating the work the workplace, we're raising pay for black workers. But once workers left the workplace, many of them who were interviewed by auditing co companies would say, it doesn't matter, you know, my life hasn't changed because of these, these principles. And, you know, as time went on, Sullivan stuck to, to his, his gut feeling that apartheid needed to end. And that corporations, you know, greatly disappointed him by doing so little. And then, of course, the principles were never made mandatory. So that was also an issue. They were very much toothless and companies did not have to sign them <laughs> to remain in South Africa. So one, one thing that really strikes me is that this is quite clearly part of, of the capitalist system um, and, and maintaining forms of capital, whereas the anti-apartheid movement um, in Europe is largely associated with being a leftist or, and, uh, and to some extent communist uh, inspired movement. So was there any disconnect between the activists um, of the anti-apartheid movement in the US who may have been more left-leaning uh, left and then their critique or intersection between the Sullivan principles which are still fully wedded to a capitalist model. Now I appreciate the US's um, political system at, the, at that time um, and its stark anti-communism probably played a big part in this, but I was wondering whether you, you knew anything about this or could tell us a bit more about it. Certainly, so Sullivan and the Sullivan principles were strongly disliked by the larger anti-apartheid movement and, and particularly the leftist element of, of the movement. On the other hand, they did receive support from more moderate uh, activists. So for example, the NAACP was in support of the Sullivan Principles largely, whereas organizations like TransAfrica, um, which was a lobbying organization for African-American and uh, Caribbean affairs, uh, very much objected 
largely to the Solzhen principles because they were fighting for economic sanctions. They were wanting more. So uh, again, Solzhen was not universally liked by the broader anti-apartheid movement. And many activists were critical because they saw the principles as prolonging you know, the lifeline of apartheid as saying, this isn't helping, this is actually giving a corporations an excuse to stay in South Africa, kind of an out for them to avoid excess criticism. Um, so that kind of was something that really stymied the anti-apartheid movement. And for example, a, a report commissioned to investigate the Solvent Principles in South Africa. And Elizabeth Schmidt was the author of this report called Decoding Corporate Camouflage, gave you know, a really damning critique of the Solvent Code. And it's based on the title, Corporate Camouflage is a way for corporations to hide their operations and what's really going on in South Africa from you know, shareholders and the American public more broadly. Yeah, and so, and so building on Matt's question, there's some really striking parallels with context here. And, and while obviously we pointed out some of the differences between the American and the British movements, particularly in how they emerged, this debate around constructive engagement, code of conduct is, is happening in Britain as well. There's a big concern in the mid-1970s about treatment of black workers by British subsidiaries in South Africa. And there's a parliamentary subcommittee which creates a code of conduct um, in 1974 then that becomes the, the basis of European Communities Code of Conduct in 1978, which, like the Sullivan Principles, is also voluntary and I think it also had sort of mixed success. Then, linked to Matt's question there, it was also widely condemned by the anti-apartheid movement. As rather than being apartheid, it was, it, it was maintaining it. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think just in the broadest sense, in the late 70s, a number of transnational codes of conduct emerged. So you also have the Canadian code. And then I believe Barlow Rand is kind of this like more independent code of conduct. Um, and the commonality between all of them is they're under no obligation to sign on to onto them. And then of course, in the case of the Solving Code, the one other caveat that's really interesting is that it's sort of privileged really large corporations that had a lot of capital to spend on these operations because Corporations that signed onto the code and had to fill out these questionnaires every year, again, all voluntary, also had to pay for it. So smaller companies that have, you know, maybe 20 workers in South Africa likely weren't going to sign on to the Solving Code and complete this monitoring process in the first place. You, Matthew and Chris, uh, touched on these parallels in both legislation and certainly ideology throughout the 1970s, this compassionate capitalism that's emerging and linked with that, the constructive engagement with the uh, apartheid state. While Sullivan didn't want to engage with those, the uh, necessities of both the time and corporate interest meant that they played into these ideas of constructive engagement. On this theme of parallels, how did the Sullivan principles and legislation that's happening in Britain and elsewhere mirror what was happening in uh, labour reforms in South Africa at this time? More specifically, did, did the creation of norms by the United States filter into South African policymaking when it comes to their, their labour reforms? Certainly, and I would almost say it was almost in reverse as well, because what was happening in South Africa and the ways in which the apartheid government was willing to reform things like petty apartheid, giving black workers 
the opportunity to join multiracial unions, as well as eventually prohibiting, reversing the Prohibition on Mixed Marriages Act. So with the new government under Kim Buta, he very much was willing to reform apartheid. Thus, the Sullivan principles were able to adapt that as well. Sullivan was, you know, always compromising, but always willing to work with the South African government because not just Sullivan himself, but the, the corporations in South Africa were very hesitant to push too far. And if the South African government with the Vihan Commission in 78, uh, which eventually allowed Black workers to join multiracial unions in 1981, uh, with, with this movement uh, and this shift in the politics of apartheid, the Sullivan principles also adapted and used that as, as sort of, again, ammunition to say that we're evolving and we aren't just a stagnant code of conduct. We're very aware of the need to continually reform with this, with this really evolving situation in South Africa. And then I guess another thing to mention, too, is how the Sullivan principles impacted legislation in the United States and not just in South Africa. And ultimately reaching the Reagan administration and Congress and getting a more broad-based mandatory change you mentioned there about affecting policy uh, leg- legislation, it's more so the Reagan administration and this move to the neoliberal consensus that happened both within the United States and within Britain. Did the limited nature of the Sullivan principles and the slow pace of reform against apartheid within the United States, did that breed wider dissent by the broader anti-apartheid movement? Was there a subsequent radicalization of a group of anti-apartheid activists who were dissatisfied with how slow progress was going and the extent to which excuses were almost being made for working within the apartheid state rather than trying to disassemble it from the outset? Certainly. Building on some of my earlier discussion of groups like Trans Africa, for example, that were very much promoting this idea of mandatory economic sanctions as the only way to break the back of apartheid. They were always largely opposed to the Sullivan principles. And Trans Africa, which was led by Randall Robinson, a really prominent anti-apartheid activist who had connections you know, to the Congressional Black Caucus and you know, other leadership in D.C., led... Um, helped form the Free South Africa movement, which was a more grassroots protest-based arm of Trans-Africa that, and would protest outside of the South African embassy in DC, uh, you know, calling overtly for economic sanctions as uh, the main agenda. And they were very much opposed to the Sullivan principles and saw the code as just upholding apartheid. And this was something that by the time Reagan, you know, and constructive engagement came to power, the Sullivan Code was very much tied to uh, constructive engagement because it was willing to work within the apartheid apparatus. And so from an activist standpoint, they didn't see a difference between the Sullivan principles and constructive engagement. They saw them very much as one and the same. And so that, whether or not Sullivan wanted that or not, that posed a problem because regardless of um, Sullivan's intent, it was at this point something Reagan was willing to accept. Just building on that um, a little bit, and you mentioned the, the polar 
Pride workers in early 1970s. How did workers in America act in solidarity with South African workers, particularly as you say with the Sullivan Principles and the slow pace of change? Do we see more direct action from American workers, strikes, etc.? Right. I mean, I think it's really important to bring up Polaroid in this regard because this is a movement that largely predated the Sullivan Principles and was kind of a catalyst for General Motors to kind of consider, oh no, this could be us. Um, so basically with Polaroid, you know, after this so-called Polaroid experiment, um, the American public was becoming more conscious of this, the controversy of U.S. corporations. And the Polaroid Revolutionary Workers Movement was actually launched by two African-American workers of the company in the United States. Origins of this movement, these workers realized that Polaroid film was being used to create passbooks and you know, photos that the apartheid state would use to limit the movement of uh, Black South Africans. So these workers called for the company you know, to fully exit South Africa. Long story short, Polaroid basically said, they would examine their operations there and reach some ultimatum. Eventually, Polaroid kind of shocked the world when it did pull out in November of 1977. So this is kind of coinciding with the inauguration of the Sullivan Principles. But building on what you said, this movement was so important because it was led by U.S. workers at a U.S. corporation that had operations in South Africa and was clearly guilty of building up the apartheid regime and basically making apartheid more efficient. So another important thing about these, the worker movement here is that it eventually led to the earliest formation of a sanctions bill that would be revised many times over until 1986 when it was passed. But the origins were, of course, in this early leftist worker-based protest movement. Um, specifically with Polaroid. Do we see similar actions in later decades, in the 70s and 80s? Do we see workers taking similar actions or is this quite like a one-off? No, you definitely see workers taking similar action, um, even com companies like Ford and General Motors, for example, and even actions coming not just from workers, but also the, the AFL-CIO, um, United Auto Workers, for example. So um, Owen Bieber being very opposed to, you know, to the continuation of corporate operations in South Africa. So there was this, this clear consciousness in the United States from workers at these corporations, especially in Polaroid being like one of the first examples, but into the 80s uh, as well, Ford and General Motors, you see, uh, even in Detroit, you see some variations of strikes in kind of solidarity with South African workers. That's really interesting because because in the U in the UK context you don't see British workers striking in solidarity with South African workers on on sort of this level. Um, not to say that trade unions weren't supportive of the anti-party struggle; they just expressed that in different ways. A lot of them were very closely linked to the anti-party movement in Britain, and actually, well, in the seventies and then particularly in the nineteen eighties basically funded the movement almost single-handedly at the time. It's just interesting to see this greater propensity to take a more direct action approach in the US context than among workers than in the UK context. Building on that, Chris, I think there's also a, it's like almost a flip between our kind of common perceptions of activism within Britain and within the United States. Certainly popular activism within Britain is seen largely as working class solidarity and class-based. 
Um, and in the United States, it's, it's seen more as a struggle for uh, the American ideals and for civil rights and stuff. So it's interesting to see how uh, the United States went with almost a dual prong strategy of kind of fighting for these ideals, ideological level, and then also um, workers fighting on a, on a kind of practical basis. The issue that we've not discussed as much, but relates mainly to the grassroots, is the consumer boycotts. Were these as prevalent in the United States as they were in Britain? And uh, was consumerism used as a, uh, a tool with which apartheid could be taken apart at a consumerist level rather than just a production level? Yeah, I was honestly just about to go there too, because in the case, again, of Polaroid, they about uh, just in the first quarter of this consumer boycott, you know, 1971, they lost about four, $4 million in sales. So these were very effective measures. And, you know, we're not just limited to Polaroid. So other larger transnational corporations had to cope with specific consumer boycott campaigns as well. And they were, they were led by various organizations such as NAACP and the AFL-CIO, also called upon Americans to boycott Shell gas stations and because of the company's dealings with the South African Defense Force. So Shell, Polaroid, Ford, General Motors, all these companies had to deal with some sort of economic isolation due to consumer consumer boycotts. Um, And then kind of building off of that too, students and anti-apartheid protests on college campuses very much were another factor emerging in tandem with some of these these uh, consumer boycotts, they were calling for universities to divest in the stock they owned in U.S. corporations in South Africa. And, you know, we have in 1977, at the earliest, Hampshire College was the first university to uh, divest from its holdings. You know, this builds to a crescendo in 1988, over 150 universities had divested. It's also was an effort that was taken on by cities and towns in the United States that would divest in their holdings in these corporations. So between that and the boycott, corporations were under immense pressure. And uh, I believe in the earlier episode too, another type of boycott you guys were discussing was the, the sports boycotts, which was also another factor just to add to the pressure um, that South Africa was facing as everyday people were able to kind of have an impact more or less without being tied to some of these organizations. They didn't have to, you know, physically go to the South African embassy to get arrested, sent to jail for protesting apartheid to have an impact. And I think that's kind of why the movement had so much appeal to people. Was the effectiveness of the movement partly based in its ability to work within capitalism and to work within the spheres of uh, consumerism and, and work to fight apartheid on an economic level uh, rather than a political level, given the Cold War atmosphere of the time? Did the choice to work within the spheres of market principles and neoliberalism, did that help the anti-apartheid movement in the United States get around this issue of being seen as a Marxist organisation, or was that still uh, a threat um, amongst those who were um, on the right in America? To be honest, I would say no. I would say that probably the single most, one of the single most important factors would be one, the visibility of the movement and just the broad appeal of it. 
um, and like the coalition that it forms. So not, I think because it allowed, you know, more leftist wings to exist with more moderate wings of the movement and because it allowed everyday people who didn't want to be, you know, full-time activists to participate played an important role, but it was more or less the connection that it had to lawmakers, to Congress through uh, Trans Africa and the Congressional Black Caucus and this this broader coalition that was able to get economic sanctions to the the very top of legislative agenda in the mid '80s and was actually, in fact, able to get moderate Republicans in Congress, for example, to back it. So the Democratic Party had supported economic sanctions legislation, but it was the fact that it could be this sort of bipartisan issue that Congress could use to even override the policies of the Reagan administration and sort of executive power, which I think is just very unique. And I guess to your point, to some extent, yes, it could be sort of the the moderate nature of the movement that allowed it to you know, subvert some of maybe the the interpretations that the Reagan administration was portraying onto it. But on the whole, I think I think that that had to be combined with Reagan, Reagan's really weak constructive engagement policy and the fact that you know the media was portraying this this violence in South African townships and the South African government wasn't changing; it was allowing it, and Reagan was supporting it. Was just such a bad look, and it really spoke to its very clear failures. Apartheid was not ending; it was you know getting much worse. <laughs> so to your point, I think there's just too many factors to really necessarily say that the sort of market-based approach was what did it. You know, maybe even quite to the contrary, it did serve to sort of galvanize the anti-apartheid movement further to kind of push for further reform to allow economic sanctions, which had been viewed as more radical in the late 70s to when we're in 85, 86. This is an agenda that they can support. Um, and they see Reagan, yes, they support Reagan still, but they see him as an abject failure in this specific foreign policy arena. You mentioned the sports boycott then, and we obviously in previous episodes have talked quite extensively about the sports boycott um, in the UK. I'm just interested to, to find out how this manifested itself in the US, right? Because the UK has this this connection in the sense of colonial sports such as rugby and cricket and that was the main focus of sort of anti-apartheid activism around sport was disrupting cricket matches rugby matches etc how and so then i'm just wondering how this how this manifests in the u.s is it mainly around things like the olympic movement with regards to the sports boycott you're definitely right uh the olympic sports and sort of south africa's banning from the ioc was major but i also think that Another good example of, I guess, maybe sports-based activism too is uh, Arthur Ashe and his fight to get a visa to play in South Africa brought so much attention to the cause in the United States. He basically was uh, denied a visa by the South African government on the basis of his political statements against apartheid. But simultaneously, he, as he pointed out, the South African government was perfectly fine issuing visas to white athletes who were, you know, criticizing the South African government. So it was like very clear that it was purely on the basis of, of race. So yeah, it seems like the concurrent theme throughout this podcast has been uh, economic sanctions and the move of companies both symbolically and practically to divest from 
the apartheid state. This culminated in 1986 with the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act. Could you speak a bit about how influential this act was and the influence of the anti-apartheid movement in shaping this legislative decision? Certainly. So one of the most important connections between the anti-apartheid movement and the economic sanctions legislation was the Congressional Black Caucus, which had its roots again in this earlier period and always kind of had a strong interest in fighting colonialism and apartheid and just generally paying attention to global issues of race and the oppression of Black people globally. So the Congressional Black Caucus, well as Trans Africa, which specifically lobbied and allowed this popular grassroots movement in the interest of the anti-apartheid movement to reach the upper echelons of government. It very much kind of served as a bridge between the grassroots movement and lawmakers in Washington, D.C. Very much was able to push the sanctions agenda forward, starting with economic sanctions legislation and a bill that didn't uh, necessarily pass in the 70s to a bill that was formed and passed the House of Representatives in 85 uh, that very much, you know, promoted economic sanctions and actually even included an element of the Sullivan principles in it, uh, calling for corporations to make the principles mandatory. So that was, in fact, a component of economic sanctions legislation that actually passed the House of Representatives and ultimately would pass in the Senate and form ultimately the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act of 1986. So we see kind of wedged in between these two two bills, we see Reagan uh, enacting an executive order as kind of this last ditch effort to show that he uh, does care about apartheid and he wants, supposedly, um, and that he wants it to come to an end. But of course, this executive order was very weak and did little to actually call for economic sanctions and uh, target these corporations in South Africa. So what happened, of course, was after Reagan's executive order was this general uh, consensus uh, in the House and ultimately the Senate to pass a bill that went a step further and called for full disinvestment from um, South Africa. The Senate rejected full disinvestment, but would ultimately improve this Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act by a very large margin in August of 1986, and then would later override President Reagan's veto. And that was kind of the culmination of years of protests by the anti-apartheid movement, starting at this grassroots level with an interest in in workers, then eventually holding strong through uh, the challenges of Reagan's determination to stymie the movement, getting support from Republicans and Democrats alike to pass this broad-based legislation that broke the economic back of apartheid and eventually led to the exodus of most companies doing any business in South Africa. I think the comprehensive anti-apartheid is a really interesting example and it's making me think about the British context and, and I always think of the anti-apartheid movement in Britain as being this really broad-based coalition, which which it was, but mainly of those on the sort of the centre leftwards, if that's the best way to put it, whereas you're, you're talking about how the Republicans in the, in the different houses um, sort of 
managed to, to come to some acceptance with this comprehensive anti-apartheid act. The Conservative Party in the UK or Conservative politicians, that just wasn't a, an option. They, they followed the party line that Mark Thatcher was, along with Ray, one of the faces of opposition to sanctions. It's interesting that, that the anti-party movement in the US were able to bring in Republicans, whereas the anti-party movement um, in Britain struggled. In it. And it might be some, and it's something to do with the nature of the political system in terms of being able to almost subvert the president in this case through the houses, whereas in the UK, you don't really have that because it's the main party proposes legislation and then people vote on it, whereas and Thatcher is unlikely to have ever put forward a comprehensive sanctions plan. I mean, she did agree to some sanctions, but sort of limited ones. But so it's just a really interesting comparison. Yeah, I think that's really interesting too. And that's something that, you know, again, even as as an American, in today, especially in today's political climate, you just can't imagine that happening, yeah. you know, because to override a veto, you know, it's two thirds majority in both houses. So, I mean, this is something that it's very hard to come by. So um, particularly too with Reagan being still maintaining popularity within the Republican Party, the fact that people were able to, you know, vote against him, you know, speaks to kind of the robustness of this movement and um, the ways in which apartheid in this in the context of the late 80s was just so morally repulsive that um you know traditional supporters of south africa um especially as kind of an anti-communist ally were able to say no this is enough or we this is too much we need to kind of do away with this morally bankrupt policy just lastly on that is the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act, uh, as you've both stated, is, is huge in terms of its scope and also acts as the culmination of uh, both the grassroots activism of the anti-apartheid movement as well as the, most, uh, the more bureaucratic structures helping to shape this act and helping to go across party boundaries and bring forth an act that's going to put economic sanctions and stifle South African economic activity. So how influential was this act internationally, given that by 1986, the United States is culturally, economically, politically at the forefront of all sort of ideologies and stuff like that. So how influential was this act in causing other countries to follow suit and causing the UN to take further action? Or were the US behind on this? Just to quickly summarize, I mean, the United States had, as well as Britain, having seats on the Security Council, had throughout most of the apartheid era been the sole votes uh, opposing any sense of mandatory sanctions against South Africa. There were different types of sanctions, I guess. There was a mandatory arms embargo that the United States uh, voted for in the Security Council that was adopted in 1977. So this was kind of a tenet of Jimmy Carter's policy, a mandatory arms embargo. And then it was, you know, again, it was in place until the end of apartheid in 94. But this broad-based sanctions legislation was something that the United States, together with Britain, voting against for a very long time. So they were kind of in opposition to this global trend of disdain for apartheid and support for economic sanctions. Because in that sense, I would say the United States was very slow in adopting these measures. Yeah, and I think the same for the UK as well. It was very slow. And where the UK signed up to sanctions, a lot of that was through institutions such as the Commonwealth or the European community and particularly the Commonwealth was 
really pushing the British government to do so much more than it was willing to do. And, and they were really critical of, of Margaret Thatcher in particular and, and her approach. So I think things like, yeah, as, as Matty says, the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act is sort of like the US coming to the party. But then it's also the same, it's the same for Britain as well. It was extremely slow to react to growing demands, even in the 80s, for, for more comprehensive sanctions. Just, just as a kind of last question, despite the US being slow in undertaking this legislation and despite other countries going forth with it uh, beforehand, was it this act, at least in an international sphere, that was the final nail in the coffin for uh, the economic argument against apartheid and the uh, bankruptcy of it, both in practice and as an idea? Certainly. And a lot of that is even echoed in the statements of South African state president. So, so President Botha, you know, the, the state president during most of the Reagan era, he was quoted as saying something to the effect of, you know, once sanctions are imposed, pretty much we're done. <laughs> we can't, you know, survive in this state and that apartheid. We'd have to make some sort of compromise. So in uh, the early 1990s, another factor too is um, at this point, uh, de Klerk's in power as uh, the South African president, and he makes steps towards uh, reconciliation. You know, releasing Nelson Mandela and political prisoners. And at this, you know, at this point, there there are a number of of other factors, but it's clear, I think, to the international community in South Africa, that um, sanctions really were the nail in the coffin. Just because, or the United States has been kind of the lifeline for South Africa throughout this period. Again, kind of on top of that. There was a global recession in the early 80s, so that kind of just added fuel to the fire and made it even harder for uh, South Africa to really survive kind of as, as this international pariah. Yeah, I would just echo a lot of what, what Matthew's just said there. And I suppose the comprehensive anti-apartheid comes at around the, the same year as the, the Barclays withdrawal, which is sort of seen as the, the, a big moment in the economic sanction story in Britain. So it's, it's all happening at the, at the same time, I missed this around sort of growing resistance in South Africa, growing repression in South Africa in the mid 80s. And yeah, these landmark pieces of legislation that in, in Britain, sort of things like Barclays pulling out, um, all sort of come to a head and basically make apartheid economically unworkable going forward. Guys, I'll end it there. Thank you so much to Matty and Chris and Matt for really helping us draw out some of the more international elements of both the United States anti-apartheid movement and the British anti-apartheid movement, as well as parallels between the two movements and some areas of divergence as well. So yeah, there that concludes our bonus episode of the Scottish Centre for Global History's podcast series on the British and American anti-apartheid movement. Thanks.